Morning. I'll be reading from Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 to 16. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which all humility, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he, but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness, fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then if you would turn back just a few pages to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and our text today will be taken from the last section of chapter 1 uh, up into the first part of chapter 2. My text kept growing as uh, the, my study continued, and I suppose that means I have more to say, or I have the same amount to say about less, uh, more text, which means we won't get quite as deep into the text possibly as we would have hoped to. Just say I'm conscious, rather conscious of an echo going on here. I would also invite you to pull out your bulletins there's a specific part of the bulletin that you may or may not notice regularly. Uh, in fact, I think there was a, it's probably been a couple of years ago now, that there was a little bit of a test done uh, with this part of the bulletin. And I think there was one person in the church that noticed uh, the change. Uh, which means I assume that either people aren't that familiar with the, the statement or most people don't read it. And that is at the, on the back page down at the bottom, we have a little paragraph called mission statement. And I'd like for us to begin uh, this time by reading this simple statement together. And I'm going to tell you also uh, what the, the change is. The first two words uh, say... In this, in this statement, to be, 
the original document said, we are. Okay, and I would ask you to just reflect for a few moments on why someone might change that without due process. Okay, I don't know there was ever a congregational vote on it, and it just dawned on me that it's, it still is that way. And if you go back to the historic church documents, you find that the mission statement of the Calvary Mennonite Fellowship as drafted, I think, in roughly 2000, 2001, says we are a caring community of faith. And someone had the audacity, and I'm not going to tell you who it was, I found about about afterwards, to change it to 2B, mission 2B. So why do you think that might have happened? I'm not going to call the person out and ask him to explain. Uh, why do you think that statement might have been shifted? And as I understand it, I think it's because they thought we weren't. So they said it's, a, it's an ideal. It's something out there that we're shooting toward and reaching for. Okay, so I'll leave that interpretive process to you, uh, but you need to at least know it. Now let's read it together as it is here in this passage. To be a caring community of faith in full dependence on the Holy Spirit, committed to glorifying God, magnifying Christ, sharing the good news with all people, and edifying our fellow pilgrims through the exposition of and obedience to God's sufficient written word. That's a fairly sweeping, comprehensive statement of mission and purpose. And I would say that there's a sense in which that statement could be adopted by almost any church, almost any assembly of people who confess their faith in Jesus Christ, their loyalty to Jesus Christ, and believe themselves to be a part of the body of Christ. And so it's, a, it's an almost universal statement, and yet it has been adopted specifically uh, in a previous kind of era of the church as a description of what we are about. <coughs> I ask you to bear with me. I actually have a voice. wasn't sure I would have it, uh, but I still have a cough as well, so they're in conflict with each other here, and I'll try to protect your ears and the speaker system from it as best I can. I would ask you, how do you think we are doing with that mission statement? How do you think that Calvary Mennonite Fellowship here on the opening days, the opening era of 2017, how are we doing? And we could break it out. It would be kind of interesting. I thought about it just passing out a quick scorecard, breaking it out into a list of each of these categories and asking you to rank it from 1 to 10 in various facets of the mission statement. How are we doing? I'm sure there's no one here who would say uh, the mission statement is not valid. And I'm also quite certain there's no one here who would say, we've got this one wrapped up and nailed down. And if you can dream of an ideal of this being fulfilled by a local church in any point on the planet, it's us, folks. It's us. We've got it. I don't think there's anybody here who would say that. But it's also a question for you individually. How are you doing is this a valid mission statement? And how are you doing with the specific call? 
in each of these statements. And the other thing I want you to consider is that anytime we look at the mission of the church, anytime we look at the whole concept of the church, and particularly as Anabaptists, okay, this is, this is part of our DNA, that we hold to a very, very high ideal of what it means to be a church of Jesus Christ. In fact, is many early Anabaptist writers, many early Anabaptist leaders even use the term divinization for believers. The concept was that when you are truly born again, you become significantly like Jesus. You are radically transformed. And we can track, we can track our history theologically and ask, so how thoroughly has that happened? And uh, obviously, this comes into our ecclesiology. How do we understand the church then? And what level of sanctification do we believe occurs when someone is born again? How much space is there for growth? How much struggle is there present in the life of the believer in this journey? But we do have a very high ideal. And I'm going to tell you, Scripture holds up a very, very high ideal of the church of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Peter does so in the book of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. The Apostle Paul does so in his letters. Jesus talks about this assembly uh, that he is going to call out with very, very high ideals. So we will describe much of this ideal here today. And the question then, of course, is, how do we at Calvary Mennonite Fellowship in 2017 work to move significantly into the ideal that God in his word lays out for the church. Let's read this passage together, and I'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, <coughs> verse 13. And one of the reasons I kept expanding the passage is because every time I want to start somewhere, it says, therefore, wherefore, because of. Uh, and so I still had to start with a therefore. Peter, writing a letter to the churches, the early churches scattered throughout what today is modern Turkey, and he's specifically addressing Jewish people, though not just Jewish people, but the Jews that are dispersed, scattered abroad. He's writing to them because many of these folks likely had a reasonably comfortable life as Jews. The Roman Empire had accepted Judaism as a legitimate religion, and they were able to build synagogues, worship as Jews, worship the one true God, whom they declared to be the one true God. They were free to do that. And so they had synagogues scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they would meet to worship God. Some of them, of course, would travel back to Jerusalem for the special feasts. Now the gospel of Jesus has been declared to these people, and some of them have said, this Jesus, who walked the hills of Galilee, he truly is the Jewish Messiah. And we declare our faith in him as the culmination of all that Israel was about. And they represent what is now a new people of God. Something beyond Israel. A new people that also encompasses Gentiles, people who were pagans. And people who are not taking up the Jewish rites 
and ceremonies of worship. This is a new people, and suddenly from lives of relative acceptance and comfort, they find themselves suffering. Because the statement they're making is not merely that this one God out there in space somewhere in the heavens is the one true God. They're now saying and declaring that a certain man who walked in Palestine for 33 years is in fact ruler of the universe. And if you're in the Roman Empire that is now in the cult of Caesar worship and every citizen is, is demanded, it's demanded, it's commanded that every citizen is to declare that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the supreme ruler to say Jesus this Jewish Palestinian rabbi, teacher, is Lord, you're saying Caesar is not. That's a problem. And yet, that's the declaration of Christianity, that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, it means Caesar's not Lord. It means Herod is not Lord. It means the local rabbi is not Lord. Jesus is Lord, and it's a claim of exclusivity. And now they're in trouble. They're suffering for their faith. Some of them are being killed. And they're beginning to wonder, didn't Jesus make the kinds of promises that would set us free, not that would bring us suffering? And, and this is a misrepresentation of Jesus that's still going on today. A declaration that you follow Jesus and everything is going to be peace, health, and happiness, and you're going to be prosperous and wealthy. Uh, that's not exactly what Jesus said. He said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus, pardon me, Peter writes these words now to these young churches, this new people of God who are suffering. And he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word 
is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those I'm, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This ends the reading of God's holy word. We've read our mission statement, and I'm going to give you what, <coughs> what I kind of hold as a quick working summary of that mission statement in these three basic lines that are on the handout as well that you've been given. We are to be a Christ-centered, number one, Christ-centered, two, gospel-proclaiming, three, community of faith. Christ-centered, gospel-proclaiming, community of faith. I think it covers roughly the scope of that entire mission statement in a much more summary form uh, that is easier for my 50-year-old brain to remember. And I would ask you to consider just a bit who this assembly is that's gathered here in this room. I'll take a few moments and look around. There are people here that some of you have known all your lives. There are some people here whom you've only known for a very, very short period of time. There are some of you here who have grown up in Rockingham County, and Rockingham County is the only place on God's entire creation that you have lived and called home. Others have come from other parts of the world or have spent time in other parts of the world. Now, some of you have only been in Rockingham County for a relatively short period of your lives. And I ask you to consider, why are you here this morning? Why in this building, in this place, at this time? What is it that brings you here today? And I'm going to do just, just a little test out of curiosity, uh, because I did a quick scan, and I'm not, I'm not sure what this looks like. But I would like for all of you uh, who were not born in Rockingham County, okay, not born in Rockingham County to stand up. 
Okay. Uh, I don't know if that's a third, maybe 40%. Okay, you can be seated. And so you might ask, it'd be interesting just to have the conversation, say, so why are you now in Rockingham County? First question, why are you now this Sunday morning, January the 8th, 2017, at Calvary Mennonite Fellowship, Mount Clinton? Why are you here? And there's probably a whole list of possible answers. Because one thing I know is that the majority of this body uh, hasn't come here their entire lifetime because the body is relatively young. So if we would say, who, for whom is this the only church you have ever known? Um, most of those, the children would have to be lifted up. Okay, and a few would understand it and be able to stand up on their own. Most of you have other church experiences. Why are you here now? And that's a good question for all of us to answer. Answer it personally. And I would hope that at the very center of that answer is we're here because Jesus Christ has redeemed us, has saved us, and we're here to honor him as Lord and to worship him this morning. Okay, and then you're going to add a host of other things. Well, my mom and dad came to this church, and so I came with them. Or I had an uncle or an aunt who came to this church, and I found out about it, and I decided to come to this church too. Or I lived somewhere else, and I moved to Rockingham County for a job. And then I began searching for a church, and for some X number of reasons, whether it was through friendships, relationships, or you found us on the website, you ended up at this church, and that's why you're here. So the, the list is long and varied. But if you are here, it needs to be, the very central reason is because you're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. You love him because he has ransomed you, he has redeemed you, he has purchased you, and you belong to him. And then there are secondary and tertiary reasons why you might be here. Because as you look across this congregation, there's not a lot else that many of us share in common. So some of you share family connections. Some of you have no other family in this congregation. Some of you have Anabaptist Mennonite background. You've been part of a Mennonite church in Rockingham County all your lives. That's all you know. Some of you have almost no previous exposure to the Mennonite world, to the Anabaptist world. Some of you grew up in Christian homes. Some of you did not. Some of you have lived lives that have been relatively easy, while others of you, the story of your life has been marked by deep suffering and pain. Some of you are educated. The fact is, some of you are quite educated. Graduate degrees. Some of you dropped out before you finished elementary school. Didn't even make it to the eighth grade. Some in this room are wealthy, not just by world standards, but by Rockingham County standards. Some of you are very wealthy people. Some of you have a negative balance sheet. You owe more than you've got. And you're struggling to survive financially. 
Some of you are artists. Think in pictures. Some of you are logicians. Think in linear, rational terms. Some of you are optimists. Some of you are pessimists. Some of you are dreamers. Some of you are practitioners. Some of you are young. Some of you are, well, approaching at least what we would call old. I'm sure there's nobody old in the room, but some are approaching it. And then there's the vocational scope in this room. Uh, some are teachers, some are missionaries, some are photographers, some are designers, some are homemakers, some are builders, others are farmers, managers, executives, technicians, drivers, students, or in various professional fields. The list goes on and on. People in this room have a broad range of church experiences. Some of you grew up in what are, in the Anabaptist world are called old order churches. Some in Mennonite, some in Amish old order churches. Some from other segments of the Amish and Mennonite world or the broader Anabaptist world. Some from the Brethren, Baptist, Calvary Chapel, or no church. Some of you had great church experiences before coming to Calvary. Some of you had very painful church experiences before coming to Calvary. Some of you are confident in your faith. Some of you are struggling, doubtful, anxious, unsure. Why are we together? Why are we together? What is it that we have in common? Not much. Or wait a minute, maybe it's everything. What brings us here at this time and in this place into one assembly? And how has this, this new people of God been formed and to what purpose? And I would suggest to you that whatever it might be, it ought to be our common commitment to Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King. A common conviction that this Jesus has spoken, he is revealed through the Bible, and that his Holy Spirit will guide us in our quest to love, trust, and obey his rule in the world today. Now, that's a big general statement, and that could be said of any church that is assembling anywhere in the world today. Okay, any true church of God assembles for that reason, for that purpose. And so we could go, we could go down to the local Methodist church, and we could ask the pastor, uh, is this why your people gather together? And as I know the pastor, he would say, yes, that's why we're together. We could go to Mount Clinton Mennonite and say, is this why you people gather together? And he would say, yes, that's why we gather together. The same true for the little assembly. You go through the city of Harrisonburg and ask these assemblies. And so there's a sense in which wherever that occurs, the church, the people of God are gathered. And we want to be very honest about that. Because this is true for all the church, the universal church of all time, in every locality, at every point in history. Whatever else happens, 
whatever the challenges of theology, creed, or culture we might face if we're to be a church, we must be gathered around none other than Jesus Christ. He must be the center of our focus. And so the Apostle Peter writes to the churches that are scattered and reminds them of this. The churches who are suffering because they declare that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. The churches who are trying to find their way as a new people of God, trying to find their way together, Peter writes to remind them. This is what it's all about. And so to our outline, the new people of God are Christ-centered. They are Christ-centered, this new people, because they are ransomed by Christ. And this Christ is the one who was sacrificed as a lamb without blemish. This Christ was the one who was raised from the dead, and this is the Christ who was glorified by God. I don't know how much you think about the relationship between God the Father and his son Jesus, but everything we read in Scripture tells us that God deeply loves his son Jesus. God passionately loves his son Jesus. He loves him so much that he has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that ultimately at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. God so loved Jesus that he planned before the foundations of the world were laid that Jesus would be the one who would ultimately be exalted. And we are to glorify him. It is this Christ, this Jesus, that brings us together. It is the people that assemble around this Jesus that are the new people of God, a people that are purchased, ransomed, and redeemed. These new people of God are also Christ-centered because their entire lives are ordered around Jesus. Not only are they ransomed by Christ, they, their lives are ordered around Christ. They not only gather to worship, but they disperse to serve. Every facet of their lives is under the authority and direction of Jesus. They are a body for whom Christ is the head, a bride for whom Christ is the husband, and a building for whom Christ is the cornerstone. And we have this description of how we are to have our lives ordered around him. He is a living cornerstone. Now, we don't typically use cornerstones because we have all this technology nowadays. But in the old days, a cornerstone was very, very carefully carved out, very carefully shaped so that it was perfectly square. And it was laid on the foundation in order to align the building. And every measurement from that building, every straight line from that building, every plumb line from that building was taken based on that cornerstone. Just so the Church of Jesus Christ... Everything we do must be referenced ultimately from Jesus Christ. How does this work out in relation to Jesus Christ? Is it consistent with who Jesus is and what Jesus says? And the entire building takes its structure, its measurements, its dimensions from that cornerstone. And that's how the body of Christ is to be constructed. This living cornerstone was rejected by men, but it was chosen by God. This living cornerstone was loved by God, and it was the chosen cornerstone. Now, not everyone 
orders their lives around this cornerstone. But this cornerstone is an inescapable stone. And that's why everyone will ultimately bow before Jesus. You can avoid Jesus now. You can bypass Jesus. You can ignore Jesus. But ultimately, this stone is inescapable. Every eye will see him. And either you will surrender and build your life on him, ordered by him, in alignment with him, or you're going to find him offensive. And you're going to stumble at his preeminence, at his teachings, at his authority. Either way, this Jesus is inescapable. And so you are going to answer to this Jesus. You're either going to align your life by him now, or you will stumble over him, and his judgment will crush you. He is, this inescapable stone is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Either build by him, or you will be judged by him. Second, this new people of God are a gospel-proclaiming people. And they have been, they have been redeemed by the good news of Jesus Christ. They have been rebirthed by the living, abiding word of God, as Peter so clearly points out. And they have been born again by this living word of God. How does this happen? Well, he says this about the word of God. The word of God is living, abiding, and renewing. The word of God is the good news that is proclaimed, and the word of God is nourishing. So Peter reminds them, that just like little newborn babies squall and howl because really their number one concern is to be fed. And they have honestly no way of doing it themselves. They can't cook a meal. They can't go milk a cow. There's nothing they can do to get their food. And so they have this blasting wail for food. And it's a deep longing. It's a gut desire. And it's actually a deep need. They're not going to live without nourishment, without food. And Peter says this is the same is true for new believers. They hunger and long for the pure spiritual milk so that they may grow up into salvation. And here's the qualifier, if in fact they've tasted that the Lord is good. And if you've encountered the Jesus that God loves, you've encountered him and you have tasted how precious Jesus is, you too will long for the nourishment that Christ brings through his word. It's the word that sustains us, that feeds us. And then this new people of God are a community of faith. And we will add by God's mercy. They now have a common unity, and they work out this salvation in a specific time and place and context. And again, I would remind you that it's impossible to do church by a purely kind of platonic ideal, by just a set of ideas. We actually have to do church. You actually have to get together with real people. You actually have to get together at a place. You actually have to say things and do things and baptize people and feed the Lord's Supper to people. And you actually have to exclude people and include people. That's the nature of how church is done. And so it ends up being fleshed out, Jesus-loving people in local assemblies who have to do the hard work of being a community of faith in a specific time and place. These people are being transformed. 
So this new people of God or a community of faith, by God's mercy, they're a people transformed. And they're transformed from ignorance to holiness. Verses 14 through 15, be not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, we don't often think of ourselves as being ignorant. We like to see ourselves as educated and informed. But Peter makes a pretty broad sweeping statement that anybody who is not aligned with the person of Jesus in the world and his view of life in the world is in fact ignorant. You are called out of that ignorance and called to holiness, which is a life and thought aligned with the very purposes of Jesus in the world, with the way God sees the world. And he says, if you call God Father, he's the one who judges impartially according to what you do. You need to reverence him, you need to fear him. You need to respect this God. This common unity of our faith is also the place where our transformation gets tested out and where most of the debates regarding theology, where most of the debates regarding practice, where most of the disagreements and the divisions take place. They don't take place in the ethereal community of faith. They don't take place in just the realm of the universal church. They take place in the local level because that's where these things have to be sorted out. This is where denominations, where congregations come from. This is where congregations develop certain atmospheres and cultures. And I don't know how many of you folks have actually visited Augusta, but again, down there just this past Sunday, And the culture of that church is very different than Mount Clinton. Just the aura, the way church is done, the way people interact is is different. And I can't say one's bad and one's good. They're different. A different assembly of people. And you need to go go visit sometime if you haven't. Uh, God is doing some beautiful things there. But it's a different church. It's a different assembly with a different flavor. And so we can't quite become this ethereal all things to all people kinds of church. We actually have to do church based on who we are and how we're made up and who the people that are present are, but it must be a transformation taking place from ignorance to holiness. And also people who are being transformed from futility to fruitfulness and from fraudulence to faithfulness. We don't have much time to unpack those except to say that this concept of futility... (coughs) that the Apostle Peter references here seems to have the implication that the old Jewish law and sacrificial systems had a sense of futility about them. Every year, you had to make the same sacrifices. Every year, you had to find another lamb. Every time certain things occurred, you had to go through the same rituals over and over and over and over. And there's a certain weariness and futility that comes to that. And Jesus came into that futility as the Christ, the one lamb slain once for all, for all time, for all people, and has brought us into a new community of faith that is to be a community of fruitfulness. Some of the things that we will have to explore as a local congregation is how does this work out in our own congregational life, 
as we seek to move from our ignorance toward holiness, from our exercises in futility toward fruitfulness, from our fraudulence, our sinful practices of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, to a lifestyle of obedience, where our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God. And that's what churches in all times and all places are working at. This is also now, this new people is a people assembled. Uh, you can be born again into the universal body of Christ, but the way church is done, you're going to have to gather with believers. You assemble. And as soon as you assemble, people who were formerly not a people, okay, this body doesn't get together anywhere else. You don't get together for a construction celebration. You don't get together for an educational event. You don't get together for vocational training. You don't get together at an economic uh, venture of some sort. You don't get together anywhere else. When we assemble, we who were formerly not a people, when we assemble, we now establish practices, traditions, not because of our geography, though our geography influences those, not because of any aspects of shared culture, though any shared culture we have shapes how we gather together, not because we have shared ancestry, because we don't, not because we all like each other and think everybody in the room is the greatest person in the county. No, we're actually people in the room that hate each other naturally and sit on opposite sides because they probably prefer not to just hang out. There are people in this room that you would not get together for a cup of coffee just because you found it the most restful, delightful thing under the sun. You're just not naturally friends with those sorts of people. But God has brought you together into this assembly for a purpose. It doesn't mean you don't need to love them. You're called to love them, even if they're your enemies. Okay, You're not given a pass on it. Jesus says you love them. Uh, he doesn't say you have to like him. And I'm never quite sure what the difference is between loving and liking. But I know you can love people that you don't like. Or if not, Jesus couldn't rightly say, love your enemies. Okay, so liking everybody is not one of the requirements to be assembled with them. All of these things shape who we are as a people. But they must be secondary or even tertiary, some of them, to Christ. If any of these genealogical connections, relational connections, cultural connections, even geographical connections, take a primary position, we cease to be a new people of God, and we simply become a people of another sort centered around something else who may also happen to love Jesus. And Peter spells it out in this way, you are a chosen race. This is a people with a new identity, entirely new identity. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. And then we are a people who are commissioned. A people commissioned, two words, as messengers and as models. We are now messengers of the supreme excellency of Christ. We are to be models of the virtue that Christ has brought into our world that testify of God's redeeming work of salvaging broken humanity into a new city, a new people of God. 
And those deserve a lot more unpacking, which hopefully we'll do as we go forward. But I'd like to conclude here with just a few verses from Ephesians 7. What is God doing in assembling this church? We're talking local church. We're also talking about any church that assembles truly around the worship of Jesus and loyalty to Jesus. What is God doing? And does it matter? In Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul describes it this way. Of this gospel, 